0: As you're finding a seat, we'll dismiss our school age kids, follow Mr. Crenshaw there in the back, and they'll go to their classes and um, be learning back there. And while they are headed back there, um, let me just welcome you again, second welcome. Thanks for being here with us today. Um, if you, uh, when you came in, you may have received our little Lent guide, and we are in the uh, season of Lent. Um, The 40 days leading up to Easter and kind of modeled after Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. So every week we're fasting from different things. This last week uh, we were fasting from television and entertainment. And um, can I just tell you what a rich atmosphere my home was because of that? Um, I went into it not sure how it was going to go. But multiple nights around the couch, us talking about the things of God, it was just a really sweet time. So um, I encourage you to follow along with us in that you can get more information. If you didn't get one of those, they're outside on the connection table. Um, We've been walking through the last eight weeks, this is the eighth week of a uh, series we're calling The Way of Jesus. And uh, we've been looking at the three-dimensional life of Jesus, that he lived up with the Father, in with his uh, disciples and other believers, and then out toward the lost worlds. And not only did he model that for us, but he invited us to take on the same kind of life. He said, um, when asked what the greatest commandment was, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Outward, you would love your neighbors as yourself. And then in John 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So we've been talking about that, spending several weeks, and today's the last week, and uh, a bit of a unique service today. Instead of me um, telling you what I think about this all over again, because you've heard it, um, we've invited a couple young leaders in our church to do a TED Talk-style uh, kind of Sunday. They'll each get about 10 minutes, and if they go over their ten, a buzzer's going off, and we're going to boo them. No, we're not going to do that. Um, In uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, he says, I write to you young men because you are strong and because the word of God lives in you. And as I've been able to work with Connor and Dial, (coughs) Connor and Dalton Dial over the last couple of weeks, it's been pretty unique, their hunger and love for God's word. And so they're going to get to share some of that um, with you today. So will you join me in prayer as Connor comes? We'll pray together. God, thank you for your gift of grace. Thank you for what you're doing in and through our church. I do pray, God, that you would make yourself real to us, that this wouldn't just be some rote tradition of gathering on Sundays, as good as that is, but we would be eager to hear from you, hear from the God of the Bible, that you would speak to us, or you would share... Um, Your truth with us, Holy Spirit, would you point us to the face of Jesus? And Jesus, would you show us what the Father is like again and again? I pray for these young men as they share their hearts and what you're doing in and through your word. And I pray that we as a people wouldn't let this be a series that just dies following the way of Jesus, but this would be the new rhythm of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: It's green. Okay. Hey, Uh, good morning. Uh, So this is really cool, but kind of scary. So like Luke said, I'm Connor McDonald. I am the intern here at Covenant. Um, So after college, I want to go into ministry. So uh, my internship has given me a lot of opportunities to do ministry, whether it be uh, making coffee or getting to teach. So if you're drinking the coffee today, you're welcome. Um, (laughs) So I'm just thankful to Luke and Jason for letting me have this opportunity right here. Um, so like Luke said, we have been in this three-dimensional life series, the way of Jesus, and I'm going to recap our up relationship, so our relationship with God. Um, my main text will be Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, uh, but first I want to read a verse that I think really encapsulates the heartbeat of our relationship with God, and uh, we've been singing it a bunch, it's been brought up a bunch, and it's Psalms 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So we get the idea right that like we bite into our favorite food and it's super good and we sit back and go man that was good Uh, we can't get enough of it so we take another bite and another bite it's so good that we devour it and we indulge in it uh, and we taste and see that it's good and this is how our relationship our up relationship with God should be Uh, we're to experience God through worship creation prayer his word and just keep indulging in him um, through those things, we see how good he is. We get to experience, we get to taste and see his goodness. And that leads us to devouring God's word more, devoting ourselves to prayer, and overall just falling more in love with him. Uh, so my question is, are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? And does that make you want to continue to taste and see that he is good? So real quick, let's read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at what it looks like to taste and see that the Lord is good. So Hebrews twelve one and two says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. So let's pray real quick. God, you are so good, you are big and you are loving. So I thank you for Covenant Church. I thank you you that we can gather and worship you. I pray that more and more we will cherish you, God, above all else. God, help us to believe what Philippians 3 says, that we consider everything a loss, filth, dung compared to you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can enter your throne room and pray to you boldly. Let us not take for granted prayer or your word. And finally, uh, and I thank you for the opportunity that you have given me. Let your name be glorified through it. And I thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice. Thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love you. Amen. So while we were preparing for this, Luke prayed for Dalton himself and me and for our sermon. Uh, Something he prayed stuck out to me. And when he prayed, he said, God, before we do anything, you call us to yourself. And that's so true of our three-dimensional life. Everything flows out of our up relationship. Before we can have those out and in relationships, we have to have a relationship with God in the first place. Uh, The other two relationships are an overflow of our relationship with God. So Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, there's a lot in those. We can go back and look at the Hall of Faith, but we don't have time for that. Uh, So I'm just going to pull three points from the, the two verses and see what it looks like to taste and see that God is good. So, first thing to understand right here is that the author of Hebrews is comparing the Christian life to a race. And the first thing he asks us to do within this race is to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. So if I were to go out and run a race, or a marathon, or 5k, I don't know, any, any type of race, I'm not going to take a backpack full of bricks with me. Why? Because it would slow me down, it would weigh me down, and overall hurt my chances in this race. And that's my first point, that we have to throw off our backpacks full of sin. First, we have to throw off sin because we 're called to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. but second, we throw off sin because it can bring about problems in our walk or in this case our race. So sin can slow down our growth we cannot pursue sin in God. Jesus said that you cannot serve two masters that you will either hate one, you will hate one and love the other, and that 's the same here that we cannot um, we cannot serve both God and sin that we will hate one and love the other. And since we're all sinners, we would pick sin. Sin can also weigh us down. Sin, if kept bottled up, can just be this huge burden. And we, and we see that in Psalm 32 uh, when David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Sin can create this physical turmoil and pain within us. And sin will hurt us. If we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then we know that he is what satisfies us alone. Like we just saying that we have tasted life, nothing, nothing satisfies like you do. But if we play with sin, we find that it does not satisfy. It hurts us actually, it will leave us spiritually starving. So we have to get rid of our backpack of sin. Hebrews 1 goes on to say, let us run with endurance the race set before us. So this is important. Where do we get this endurance? And we get it from spending time with God. It's the Sunday school answers of read your Bible and pray. This is my second point. Spending time in God's word and in prayer produces endurance. So keeping with the race analogy, most people cannot just go out and run a seven-minute mile. And those who, who can have trained and they've built up their endurance... So to run our race well, we must spend time training in God's word and in prayer. So how does the word and prayer produce endurance in our life? In trials, they give us joy and peace. When we are broken, they give us restoration. When we are lost, they give us salvation. When we are confused, they give us guidance. When we are empty, they give us satisfaction. God's word and prayer are how we endure life's challenges. This is why 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Right? Knowledge of God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. So we must commit to prayer and God's word. And finally, Hebrews twelve two says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is my final point that Jesus is our fuel for the race set before us. Jesus is our fuel. He's our God, our Savior. He is our goal and prize at the end of the race. He is, as Hebrews 1 3 says, the radiance of God. He's the reason we even seek an up relationship in the first place, because he bled and died for us so that we then can have the privilege, the opportunity to know God. And sometimes we can grow callous to the gospel. Uh, The gospel can become stale to us. And we can't let it become stale because the gospel, Jesus coming to earth and dying for us so that we can be in right relationship with God, is the foundation of our faith. This is why we need to pray, like Paul in Ephesians 3, that we will be able to comprehend what is the length and width, the height and depth of God's love. Because understanding Christ's sacrifice and God's love will lead us to a deeper love for God. So Jesus fuels us in this race. So if we're filling our life with uh, sin, we cannot taste and see that the Lord is good. Sin will hurt us. It will leave us spiritually starving. So we must remove our backpacks of sin so that no sin weighs us down. God's Word and prayer are essential to running well. They are the direct means by which we taste and see that God is good. So we must commit to spending time daily with God. And finally, the ultimate way we can taste and see that God is good is understanding the Gospel more. Because that is the ultimate display of God's love and goodness. Find your life your satisfaction and hope at the cross. And then you will be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. So now Dalton's about to head up and he will recap the outward dimension of our life.
2: Hey everyone, like Connor said, uh, I'm Dalton Dial. I'm a senior here at Covenant. And so um, today, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, Luke had asked me if I would like to speak this Sunday. And uh, it really just, it, I wanted to jump at the opportunity because like, I was so honored. I've never been able to speak on a, st- a platform just like this. And so I just really jumped at the opportunity and I was really honored. And I'm honored to be able to share a message with you guys here today. And so I want to go ahead and jump right in. Like Luke said, I'm on a time clock. But um, <laughs> today I want to jump right in. Uh, uh, like Connor said, I'm speaking on the outward dimension. I'm speaking on what we do with our faith and we have to share it. And so... Uh, If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to open up to Luke chapter 8. I'll be reading from verses 37 through 39. Again, it's Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 37 through 39. But before we dive into scripture, I want to give up some background. I want to kind of set the scene of what's happening before these verses. And so um, what's happening when we find these verses before, we see that Jesus and his disciples have arrived in the land of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of the sea of or opposite of Galilee, across the sea. And so Jesus gets here right after he's calmed the sea. And what's important about this land is that it's a land that a lot of the Jews didn't get to. A lot of the Jews never went this far away. It was a faraway land, and so they never went here, and especially not on any ministry work. And so when Jesus gets here, we find that Jesus comes upon a man who is possessed by many demons. And Jesus, the man is described as literally insane and like, like, just ravaged, and he's, he's found naked and living in a graveyard, which, like, that's just a crazy thing to, like, like depict. As someone that looks like that, like, if I came up on that, I'd be really scared. But, um, so the, the man was, um, Jesus comes upon this man, and he c- commands the demons to come out of him, and he casts the demons out into a flock of pigs, and the pigs then run off a cliff and drown. And a lot of us are probably familiar with that story. But then the people who saw this take place, the other people that were watching, the people that saw this take place were frightened and went back to their city and spread the word about what happened. And then they all come back and they find Jesus with the, with the demon-possessed man now healed, the new man. He was fully clothed and at the feet of Jesus. And we see this, and this is right where verse 37 picks up. And so verse 37 to 39 says then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great fear so he got into the boat and returned the man from whom the demons had gone begged I want you to underline the word begged it's such an important word here so he begged that he might be with him but Jesus sent him away saying return to your home and declare how much god has done for you And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so this passage can act as two things. One, as a window into our own lives and our own outward attempts to act on our faith. And as well as provide us with a practical and useful way that we can all use to disciple others and to make disciples of others. And so living in the Bible Belt down here in Louisiana, it's... Fools us into believing a lie or two very restricting myths about sharing our faith. And so, like surrounded by so many churches, a church on every corner, it, it really fools us into believing these two myths. The first myth is the belief that everyone around you is saved or at least knows who Jesus is. And the second myth that we fall into believing is the belief that when the Bible says to go, it means that you have to either be a head pastor of a church or an overseas missionary, and those are your only two options. And these myths really, really restrict us in our ability to share our faith with others and make disciples. And so to our first myth, it's so easy for us to fall into believing the myth that everyone around us is a believer, especially when there's a church on every corner and everyone that we've ever met really, we think, is a believer. And so um, I believe this myth for almost my entire life. And it's not until just recently that God has really revealed this myth to me and how much of a lie it is. And I'm not as old as everyone in this room, but almost 18, almost 18 years of believing this myth is a quite a long time to believe something that isn't true, That is, that is a lie that's so restricting. And so, but lately God has been revealing to me so many people that I do life with, so many people that I interact with every single day that do not know who he is, that do not want to know who he is, don't know the love of the Father. And so this has just made so clear to me that like not everyone around me is saved. Not everyone that I come into contact with knows the Father like I know the Father. And so it's been really convicting, but also eye-opening. And like it's made me realize that we cannot take further steps in sharing our faith if we don't come to the realization that there are lost people especially in our circle, because if we don't realize that, then we're not going to be encouraged to share our faith. And so for my second point, the second myth that we fall into believing, the myth that you have to either be a head pastor or an overseas missionary to share the gospel, is so firmly and sternly refuted in this part of Luke 8. I want to look back at verses um, 38 and 39. Um, This man, the demon-possessed man, depicts exactly the mindset that so many of us have. We see that the man becomes filled with passion and is what we like to call on fire for Jesus. And he is literally begging him to allow him to come along. And I love the term beg here. You can you can just imagine the man on his literal knees at the feet of Jesus and begging him to let him come with him, to let him go with him, to be with Jesus. Um, you will, Parents in the room, you all, know, you all know what it's like to have your kids beg for something. Like for me as a son, I know what it's like to beg. To beg for $5 to eat here or $10 to go to a movie on this day. And so it, begging is a big thing in a lot of our lives. But parents, you don't always give in to your children's beggings, do you? Of course you don't. Because you know what they want is different than what is best for them you know you know what is best for them so you don't always give in to their begging. And this is exactly what we see here. As the man begs and begs, Jesus st- stops him and says, no, son, I need you here. I need you to go back to your home, to your job, to your group of friends, to your workplace and tell them about me and make disciples right where you are, right here and right now. And so God has a specific and unique plan for each and every one of us and this unique plan is not always to be a head pastor or an overseas missionary. 1 Corinthians twelve seven says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And one of our biggest faults when we hear the Great Commission is we forget that when Christ says, All nations, that includes Benton, that includes Shreveport, Bozier, that includes your school, your neighborhood, your workplace. It includes all these places that are right around us. And we hear, when we hear the term all nations, it kind of makes us overlook this, and we cannot overlook this. But I want to encourage you not to be discouraged. Uh, we see in verse 37 that not everyone that hears about Jesus will come to know him. We see that when the people are filled with fear and ask Jesus to leave. But salvation is not our duty, for salvation comes through God and through God alone. Our duty is to go out, outwardly share and preach the gospel. Not just to foreign countries or from the pulpit, although those are important. It is to to the people that you do life with the people that you see every day and the people that you literally do life with, the people that you interact with every day. And so one final point before I pass it over to Luke is the action step. How do we practically do this? How do we practically share the gospel with those around us, with those who we do life with? If we look back one last time to verse 39, we find the answer. 39 says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So the answer to the question of how do we practically do this, how do we practically share the gospel with those around us, is this, our testimony. It is such an overlooked tool that each and every one of us have, the story of us moving from death to life through Christ Jesus. And it's such a powerful story that every one of us has. Non-believers will not always recollect with Scripture they don't, it won't always click with them. It won't always make sense. But, but if you show vulnerability and you share your story, how Jesus has changed you, if you share your testimony, that's where it'll click. That's where it'll make sense. That's where it'll recollect with them. And Because they don't always understand Scripture, but they will understand a story, a story of change. And so that. if you open up and let them see what Christ has done in your life, the physical results of a supernatural encounter. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given is to be prepared to give your testimony in 20 minutes, seven minutes, or 30 seconds because you never know when a time will come that you are supposed to share your testimony, when you're supposed to share your faith, and you don't wanna miss this opportunity. So my challenge to each and every one of you is to find someone this week, someone that you do life with, whether it's at your workplace or your home, your neighborhood, wherever it may be, find someone that you do life with and share with them your testimony. Share with them what God has done in you and to you and what he's doing now in your life. And so I'm gonna pray before I pass it on to Luke. Uh, Father God, you are so good and so powerful and just, the ability that you have to bring us from death to life. Um, You bring us out of darkness and into your light, Lord, and I pray that you just encourage us to share our faith with those that don't know you, to those that we do life with, that are so far away from you, Lord, and I pray that we just are encouraged to be the hands and feet of you and just open our hearts to let you move through us and out of us so that others can share in the glory that is yours, Lord. And I praise you and love you, and thank you so much for the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
0: Amen. Didn't they do an incredible job? Awesome. Sociologists tell us that uh, we're made up of three, three selves, three versions of us, and I would say that Scripture... Mostly through the book of Corinthians, the book we we'll are look at later is First John, argue that are really four selves. There's really four selves of four different dimensions of us or four versions of us that together give us a clear picture of who we really are. And life is really a journey from the first to the fourth. This will make sense here in a minute. The first is your public self. You understand this, in an age of social media and carefully uh, curated, right? Uh, your personal image, there's the public self, what other people think you are. What other people think you are. Largely made up of the image that you project, one in, when, when, uh, in which we tend to hide our bad qualities. And we tend to promote or exalt our good qualities, right? All about promoting the self-image. It's the Instagram life. It's what people, what you really want people to think about you. And so this is how you try to portray yourself. It's your public self. We all understand that. Then there's your private self. This is what you think about yourself. You know, the tangled web of self-talk in your brain. Uh, Sometimes... Nowhere close to the truth. Some people have an inflated view of themselves. I saw someone post something this week that um, the smartest people in the world are four-year-olds and 18-year-olds. They think they know everything, right, at those two ages. I remember when Hudson was for arguing with him over a tool that I told him was a screwdriver, and no, he said it was a wrench, and, you know, knock down, drag out just over that, right? He knew what it was. There's your private self. Some people have this overinflated view. Some people have a deflated view of themselves because their lives are filled with discouragement. Someone said something to them one time a long time ago, and it has stuck with them. And so they have a deflated, which causes all kinds of social anxiety and issues. So there's the public self and the private self, and we're tracking, right? And then there's your real self. If your public self is who others think you are and your private self is who you think you are, your real self, this is who God knows you to be. This can be a very comforting and a very scary thing. Psalm says that God knows your thoughts before you think them, that he knows the very motives of your hearts Psalms 139, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Wonderful are your works. My frame is not hidden from you. Your real self, with all the sin and all the mess and all the wrong motives, seeing straight through the public or private self, God knows who you are. He knows you specifically. All your worries and fears, your anxieties, your wrongdoings, everything. This is who God knows you to be. But there's a fourth self, and that's your glory self. This is who God is transforming you into. Tim Keller says this about the glory self. Your glory self is the person God had in mind, In mind, when he thought you up, as radiant as heaven itself. You know, parents are a little biased over their kids. And, you know, you see these cute kids down here, and you think about all that they could become, and how they're the cutest baby that's ever lived, and, you know, all these other ugly babies. This one we finally got is, like, is the cutest. I got an amen from one of the Diener Dawson over there. There we go. Think about that as a parent, as you think and dream of all your kids could become, and you try to educate them and hide God's word in in their heart, right? So they would become something that would just blow your mind, would be incredible. And yet God has a vision for your life that's greater than that. Did you know that you were made for glory? It's written inside of you. The problem is, as we try to get to the glory self without the inner transformation of the gospel, we continually fall short and grow frustrated. John's epistle reads it this way. 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we were in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's so much to be seen here. One connection we don't often make, speaking of the inward dimension, is that walking in light is connected to having fellowship with one another. As we walk in the light, it says in verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another if we 're not willing to step into truth and confession and repentance and faithfulness and the humility that all of that entails, then no one can be in a real relationship with us they 're in a relationship with your public self, not the real you because and this is what churches tend to uh, tend to become as we put on. The plastic face with the plastic smile and we call each other brother and sister. How are you, brother? Which just sounds weird in any other context, right? I remember the first time I met Ashley's dad, I've told you some of this, I said, hey, brother. It was in church and he said, I'm not your brother. I was like, okay, got it. (laughs) Mr. George, sorry about that. The less that we are in the light, the less the true us is known. Whole relationships carry on in the dark sometimes. And you can know someone for decades and not know the real them, the real struggle, the real sin, the real faults, the motives of their heart, what they lay awake thinking about at night. Married couples sleeping in the same bed could not really know each other because they haven't taken a step into the light because it's a scary thing. And so they hide in the darkness and they only reveal things Um, that is, you know, that that you're comfortable, right, letting other people see about you. Here's a quote that Ray Orland, in his book, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. He says, the heart aloof from God grows aloof from others. It engages in merciless comparisons and endless fault-finding. Therefore, all restoration begins by going back to God first, prodigals that we are. The wonderful thing about this is when we lose our way, God's not hard to find. He's in the light. Right out there in the place of truth and honesty and openness and confession and owning up to your own mistakes, God himself awaits us there. And as sinners, as prodigals, we can go to him freely through the cross of Christ there in the light but only in the light everything gets better our walk with god our heart for the lost worlds humility and deepness and relationships with others everything gets better in the light but the price we pay is to face ourselves and sometimes that's humiliating and painful it's why many people shun the light There are episodes in our past that we don't want to think about, we don't want to talk about, harsh words said to us, acts of betrayal, broken promises, and worse. We shove these memories down into the darkness of our own excuses, and we blame others. Your public self, you tend to hide your sin. In your private self, you want to excuse your sin, and your real self, you're paralyzed by sin but in your glory self, you walk in the forgiveness of your sin because of the cross. I'm not a super emotional person. As you can tell, right? As if you know me. Some of the times when my heart is moved the most is normally during worship or even in communion when I feel the weightiness of my sin. All the times I failed and missed the mark. And at the same time, you see the beautiful grace of Jesus that has come down to rescue. This is the beauty of the gospel. The invitation here is to walk in the light and not in the darkness. When we walk in darkness, we hide our sin and struggles. When we walk in the light, we confess them. When we walk in darkness, we become more and more isolated, but we walk in the light, we go deeper in relationship with others. In the darkness, we make futile attempts to manage our sin, but in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. We feel threatened by what we've done, even to admit it to ourselves, much less confess it to someone else. But those places of deepest, darkest shame is when the Lord Jesus loves us the most tenderly. It's there that Jesus meets us in the light. It's so refreshing to come back into the light of honesty where we first met the Lord. It's there that friends can be regained by love. It's there that Jesus is glorified in the eyes of the world. I think we could sum up this entire thought, this three dimensional life, the way of Jesus, with this phrase walking in the light. It's an invitation and a command walk in the light. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it this way, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I love this picture of the glory self, of the image that God has for us. How much do we miss of what God has for us because we want to hide in the darkness when his invitation is to walk in the light. I want to pray for us. You've heard uh, quite a bit today from a few different people and a few different texts. I hope you hear this invitation from God that you would walk in the light, that you would come to him. Without posing or pretense, knowing that you can trust him, you had come to him. God, I thank you for your church. These, your people, for this call on our lives to follow after you, that you've not left us without a guide, without instructions, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. John 13 says he leads us into all truth. So I pray that even now in this quiet moment, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction where there's sin? Would you bring breakthrough where there's addiction? Freedom for those that are entangled in so many other things. That we would meet you in the light. We wouldn't buy the lie that we have to clean ourselves up before you're ready to accept us. No, you're eager and set on go for us to make a step toward you. Lord, thank you for your word, for what it's doing in our hearts and lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to invite our communion service forward. We're going to take communion here in just a minute. And I'm going to be in the back, and I'd be glad to pray with you if you're working through something. You'd like somebody to pray with you. Several other members of our prayer team will be back there. During the season of Lent, we do a silent communion, at least for the first few minutes. And it can be a little awkward because a lot of us aren't comfortable with silence, right? Some of this is part of this walking in the light. And there'll be a scripture on the screen, and the invitation is that you would read The words of God, as you think through the weightiness of your own sin and all that Christ did to purchase your salvation. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but according to scripture, you do have to be part of God's family. That there's been a time in your life where you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're desiring to walk in obedience to him.